1: Campside Media. Hello? What is the uh, what do you want what to say? Is going on here? Like, oh, it's why? just um chameleon. chameleon. Okay.
2: You're listening to
1: Chameleon. A production of Campside Media.
2: Oh. <laughs> A warning before I start. There's some sexually explicit language in this episode that may not be appropriate for kids to hear. You love detective stories, right? We all do. They're huge in Hollywood and always have been. Here's Humphrey Bogart in the movie The Big Sleep. Every clue told me a different story. but Each had the same ending, murder. These detective stories have become some of America's most iconic movies, like Chinatown with Jack Nicholson.
1: In case you're interested, your husband was murdered. Somebody's been dumping thousands of tons of water from the city's reservoirs. He found out about it, and he was killed.
2: And they're everywhere today. Books, movies, TV shows, and come on, nearly every podcast series these days, including this one, is a true crime story. There are even true crime podcasts that talk about, yeah, other true crime podcasts. The Unicorn Killer.
0: What? (laughs) Wait, that sounds familiar. Did Morbid do a podcast on it?
2: You know why I think we like detective stories? Because sometimes they're real. They can happen. Sometimes there really is a detective who comes along, cracks open the case, and brings some order to our very messy world. And, well, that's about to happen in this story. I'm Trevor Aronson. From Campside Media, this is Episode 7 of High Rollers, Season 2 of Chameleon. Esra Buhari, Gus's wife, had a glamorous life once, flying all over the world as a flight attendant for Emirates Airlines. But now she's mixed up in Operation Botox, and she's Gus's only hope of getting out of jail.
3: I am Esra Selvika (laughs) Buhari. I am uh, Gassan's wife, or Gus, you call. Um, I don't know what connection I have with this case because I have no connection. I don't know anything. I didn't know those days also anything about the case. Uh, Who is who who, uh, I never met anyone. My story started when I needed some time off from being a motherhood.
2: Gus and Esra met in Dubai. But about 10 years ago, they moved to Philadelphia to start weight loss clinics under Emile's franchise. And then a couple of years later, when Emile's franchise collapsed, Gus and Esra took it in stride and started their own company, Sozo Weight Loss, a play on the Greek word sozo, meaning heal. They eventually moved to Miami, where they started two weight loss clinics, one south of Miami and the other north of the city.
1: Esra, welcome to our show, it's great to have
2: you here.
3: Thank you, thank you thank you for having us Dave.
2: This is Esra on TV in Miami during Better Days. So I come in to see you and what happens?
3: We are all natural and we are medically supervised. You come to us, we're very personal. Mm-hmm. We actually the, the client's gonna come and see me in Aventura. Right. So every week you come to us. Uh, we take really our time. We try to be really personal, and we what we're doing actually whatever we believe in. That's why it's all natural. Attitudes, it was all natural.
2: Esra had just given birth to Gus's son when Emil moved to Miami. That was also about the time Dennis and Michelle came to see Emil and Gus in Florida. Esra remembers that time.
3: Oh, Emil has another investors. maybe there will be possible franchising, you know, you even support this, actually, as a wife, you even support, oh, you know, I had to go out, maybe these people, they will possibly invest, oh, okay, yeah, you can go out, yeah, of course, of course. but I'm not going to come, I have a baby, that's it, that's why, that's why I never met them. We had fight, and it was like a bad impression about those guys, like, taking my husband out, and he's coming too late, and then that's it, I forgot about them.
2: That's all Esra knew about Dennis and Michelle, just a couple of guys Gus stayed out too late with one night. In January 2016, Esra flew to Turkey with her son to visit her family there in Izmir on the Aegean Sea. Gus stayed behind in Miami. And that was when Dennis called Emil and asked him to come to Las Vegas with Gus. This was that fateful trip. And I look at his face and
1: that was the first time ever that I ever saw Emil Buari look, like, sort of scared. Like, it, it was said on his face that he's not telling me directly, dude,
2: like, I don't want to go alone, I don't feel comfortable, could you please come with me, brother? And so Gus gets on the plane with Emil. It happened so fast, and there was a time zone difference. So Gus hadn't told Estra that he was going to Vegas.
3: And the day after, in the morning, I texted him a couple of times, he didn't reply, and I didn't take it so serious because we had also time difference.
2: But later, Esra saw she'd missed about a dozen Skype calls. They were from Kim, Emile's girlfriend. That was unusual, since Esra and Kim didn't know each other well.
3: And I called her back, and she was very nervous. She was talking like, uh, breathless, I can say, and very nervous. She said, you know what happened? Um, Emil and Ghassan got incarcerated. I didn't even understand what she said, actually. I didn't even know the word. Like, what does that mean? And I had to research and check. so what do you mean? She said they have been arrested.
2: After a few days, Gus was able to call Esra. He told her there'd been a big misunderstanding, that he didn't do anything, and that he'd be out in 10 days. But 10 days soon turned into weeks, and Gus was still behind bars. Esra was frantic, She wanted to return to the United States, but an American immigration lawyer gave her some bad advice, saying that her visa might not be good any longer since Gus had been arrested. And so, Esra was scared that she might get turned away at the border, or worse, arrested, if she returned to the U.S. So she stayed in Turkey with her young son. Esra had to watch on FaceTime as her apartment in Miami was packed up and her belongings placed in storage.
3: I couldn't even explain myself. Look, that closet that full of my stuff. I was telling the employee, you need to pack them. You know, they are important. I travel all around the world. I lost my heart disk. I still sometimes, when I remember, I cry about that. I had like thousands of pictures all around the world. I lost that also.
2: It was heartbreaking for her, as if she were watching the life she had being taken away from her, piece by piece, box by box, in real time.
3: You think, what did I do to do this? I was honest all my life.
2: Esra believed Gus that his arrest was a mistake, that he hadn't committed a crime. He wasn't supposed to be there. They'd figure it out.
3: No, this guy didn't do anything. I mean, I would know if he did something, right? I would know.
2: But she struggled to reconcile that belief with her view of America, a country she saw as fair and just, a model for the world.
3: This happens in Turkey, but it doesn't happen in America. Come on, people have rights there.
2: Months passed. Gus was locked up, spending his days listening to and transcribing the FBI's undercover recordings. He'd come to the conclusion that the case was dirty, that the FBI wasn't supposed to act the way it did in Operation Botox. But how could he prove that? He was just an immigrant locked up in jail in the desert. Every lawyer Gus spoke to told him the same. You're going to take a plea. You're going to take a plea. That's how it works. Welcome to the federal system. 97% of all criminal convictions in federal court end in plea deals. But Gus calls Esra in Turkey, and he has an idea. I said, listen, honey, nobody in Vegas gives a shit. Okay, it's an FBI thing. You know, let's get an FBI guy. Esra sits down at her computer and starts making calls, desperately trying to find someone who can help Gus.
3: And then I research about ex-FBI agents, the The resigned ones. I sent so many emails to so many people. They weren't interested. They were like asking so much money. Some of them, they were saying, "Okay, you know, I'm gonna." I told them like, "I can't pay you. I don't have money. I don't work. Look, this happened to us. Will you help?"
2: Only one former FBI agent would give Ezra any time.
4: My name is Jeff Danick, and I retired from the FBI after about 28 years.
2: More after the break.
4: Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This episode is brought to you by Saks.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
4: You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media.
2: Jeff Danek, the guy Esra called on the phone from Turkey, spent most of his FBI career in Florida, and he still lives there, not too far from former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. Jeff came to the FBI after getting an accounting degree and after a short-lived career at one of the big four accounting firms. This is a bit of trivia a lot of people don't know. The Bureau loves accountants. FBI agents, they're often former accountants like Jeff, because the skills they have are well-suited for the Bureau's work in investigating fraud and financial crimes. Jeff's first assignment, as a rookie FBI agent, was in Nebraska.
4: I uh, had a a short three-year assignment in the middle uh, of America-type office, Omaha, at that time, the FBI's policy was to ship you out. Most people got shipped to a small to medium-sized office for three years and then moved. This was 95% of agents went through this uh, matriculation of, of assignments. So mine was Omaha three years, and there it was a small office and there were a lot of violent crimes. Uh, and a couple of the years I was there, it, w- it became a big waypoint for the Crips and the Bloods to, to drop drugs as they distributed from east to west. So then the drug trade came in. We also had uh, Hells Angels Motorcycle Case, a big one we worked out there. But the work was excellent, the people were fantastic. So it was a very good experience. Then I got transferred to Miami, which was you know, a little bit of a culture shock, but it was the office I wanted to come to.
2: I wanna tell you a little bit about Jeff's career because it's important to understand how the FBI changed in the time he was there and why, in recent years, he's decided to take some principled stands against the Bureau. Jeff's FBI career spanned two eras, pre-9-11 and post-9-11. Before the 9-11 attacks, the FBI mostly focused on investigating crimes after they occurred or as they were happening. Bank robberies, public corruption, organized crime, mortgage and financial fraud, the bread and butter, crooks and robbers cases that you generally think of when you think of the FBI. After 9-11, counterterrorism, which before then had been a career dead end at the FBI, took over as the number one priority, following claims, including from whistleblowers, that the FBI had ignored intelligence that an attack was imminent.
1: Certain investigations containing very specific information was not acted upon.
2: This is Sabelle Edmonds, a former FBI translator.
1: This information was very, very specific.
2: She's giving an interview to the Associated Press about 9-11.
1: Specific enough that you believe that it could have prevented 9-11 had it been acted upon? That's a hard question to answer, but we should have alerted the public, we should have alerted our airports, and we should have alerted specifically the INS.
2: As a result of the FBI's intelligence failures, President George W. Bush had considered breaking the FBI into two agencies. One tasked with investigating crimes, and the other focused on terrorists and spies. But Robert Mueller, then the FBI director, persuaded President Bush to keep the FBI as a single agency. So this agency had to do everything, both investigate crimes after they occurred, as well as stop terrorists or foreign spies before they could harm the United States. This is FBI Director Mueller testifying before Congress in June 2002.
5: There is a need for some changes that cannot be represented by new boxes on an organizational chart. Uh, We need new ways of doing business. We need far greater collaboration, not only amongst the federal agencies, between us and the CIA and us and other federal agencies, far greater collaboration between us and federal uh, or other state and local entities in the United States, and far greater collaboration between us and our counterparts overseas.
2: Collaboration, though, was hard. So now, charged with stopping terrorists before they strike, the FBI turned to an old tactic undercover sting operations, where an informant or an FBI agent poses as the bad guy. FBI agents and informants would pose as a terrorist from, say, the Al Qaeda terrorist network, and then try to find people interested in getting involved in an act of terrorism, like a bombing. One of the first such FBI cases, in 2006, came out of Miami, the office where Jeff Danik worked. FBI agents there used an informant who led a group of seven black and Haitian men in a supposed plot to bomb the Sears Tower in Chicago and the FBI's office in Miami. To make their case, FBI agents told their informant to do something very specific. They had him lead the seven men in a pledge of allegiance to Al-Qaeda.
5: You will repeat after me. God's God's pledge is upon me. Is upon me. And so is his compact. And so is the To commit myself,
2: to
5: commit myself. okay, each one now has to stand in the middle. You say to commit myself and brother your name. Okay, start with you.
2: It was an absurd bit of FBI theater. And there were substantial questions about whether any of the men, most of them from a poor area of Miami called Liberty City, were actually terrorists or would have participated in any sort of plot were it not for the FBI's encouragement. The government is describing it as aspirational rather than operational. Seven men have been indicted in connection with alleged terrorist plots to attack sites in Miami and in Chicago. The Justice Department says the cities face no immediate threat. It took federal prosecutors three trials to convict five of the seven men, whom the news media dubbed the Liberty City Seven. The Liberty City 7 case was one of the FBI's first terrorism sting operations, and the Bureau has now arrested more than 350 people caught up in such stings, which has sparked questions from groups like Human Rights Watch whether the FBI is catching terrorists or creating them. Whereas the FBI once was an agency only investigating crimes after they'd occurred, the Bureau now actively gets involved in crimes to bust criminals in ways that can seem like federal agents cross an ethical line, if not a legal one. Jeff, as an agent, wrestled with many of these ethical and legal questions. And he believes that, while there aren't always easy answers, the Bureau needs to hold itself to the highest possible standard of conduct. During his career at the Bureau, sitting in his office in West Palm Beach, which reported to the larger office in Miami, Jeff could see the intercoastal waterway and Palm Beach Island across the water. From there, Jeff took down everyone from corrupt politicians to drug runners. His cases had pretty great names, certainly better than Operation Botox. Jeff's Operation Farmhouse Cantina popped members of a gang called the Crazy Locos on charges of drug, weapons, and human trafficking. The gang members all had nicknames, like Weasel, Pooh Bear, and Snow. And Jeff also worked on Operation Sledgehammer, which investigated a six-year scam in which more than 100 people operated a sophisticated racket to defraud insurance companies of more than $5 million. The operators of the scam recruited people to stage car accidents, and they referred to these people as dogs, using the Spanish word, perro. The dogs then went to more than 21 chiropractic clinics that billed the insurance companies for treatments that were never actually done. As Jeff climbed the ranks at the FBI, he became a supervisory agent, overseeing the work of undercover agents, like Chuck and Dennis. It was a big job.
4: Rules, policies, procedures, um, use of the technique.
2: After doing the job, monitoring these agents, Jeff came to believe that undercover investigations are a powerful tool for the FBI, but they can be abused. That's why he thinks the Bureau needs to use them sparingly and closely monitor the ones it does approve. Even the FBI's largest and busiest offices, like in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami, don't do a lot of undercover investigations at any one time. Here's how the numbers might break down at an FBI office in one of America's largest cities.
4: Let's say there's 1,500 to 2,000 cases, active investigations going on at any time you might have four undercovers going, maybe five. Uh, it could get up to six or seven, but you know that kind of gives you the percentage that it's a very reserved technique. And the reason is, is because it's intrusive, very intrusive.
2: In other words, Operation Botox wasn't some run-of-the-mill case for the FBI. It was special, an undercover assignment, a privilege for agents like Chuck and Dennis. You most often hear of the undercover cases at the FBI, so it's easy to assume that the FBI does lots of these. But that's not the case. When you consider the total number of cases the FBI takes on every year, thousands and thousands of cases, undercover assignments are rare. They're really supposed to be reserved for the elite agents and the most important cases. Since retiring from the Bureau, Jeff's specialty is investigating the investigators and the prosecutors, looking for weaknesses in their cases. After nearly three decades at the FBI, Jeff says he knows where to look for problems in a case, where the bodies are most likely buried. These days, Jeff is public in his criticism of the FBI, where he believes it's warranted. He often points out when the FBI promises to be accountable, but isn't. Jeff spends day after day taking the FBI to task, his former employer. I'll tell you a couple of the cases that he's talked about. They're big ones. For example, Jeff has questioned how the Bureau twice investigated the guy who killed 49 people at a nightclub in Orlando in 2016, and still dropped the ball. Prosecutors revealed over the weekend the shooter's father was a confidential FBI informant up until the days before the massacre. Jeff believes the FBI needs to come clean about what it knew and how it failed to prevent the deadly terrorist attack, something the FBI still hasn't done. More recently, Jeff fought a very public battle with the FBI to release documents related to former FBI director Andrew McCabe's handling of the Hillary Clinton email probe. Jeff sued the bureau to get access to text messages and email that, he believes, will show McCabe had a conflict of interest while overseeing the Clinton investigation. Here's a report about Jeff's fight with the FBI.
0: The FBI denied Danik's Voya, but in June, the Justice Department ordered the FBI to turn over the documents.
4: I don't know if they don't want those records out because it it pulls back the curtain and lets you see the framework of these investigations, or maybe they are afraid of what it actually says and who it reflects
2: on. So Jeff has been out there, in the public, as a credible FBI watchdog. One day, Esra, sitting at her computer in Turkey, came across Jeff online. First his LinkedIn profile, and then the website for his consulting work. And she arranged a call with him.
4: She was kind of pleading with me about her husband and that he needed help and that uh, he's not a criminal, that he's not involved in any of the things that the FBI is accusing him of. She just told me the backdrop of it. And you know, it's something I had heard a thousand times before that the person's not guilty and completely innocent. I was skeptical, but I have to tell you, she had a way about how she was expressing it that sounded very, um, that she believed it
2: at least. Jeff agrees to look at the discovery in Gus's case, just to see if there's any there there, anything suspicious or problematic about the FBI's behavior. Because a lot of times, Jeff says, people claiming FBI abuse don't have the evidence to support their allegations. He's got some initial questions when he first gets the case file. Why did the FBI spend two years going after such small-time money launderers? That's one of Jeff's nagging questions. Then some crack detective work unearthed more questions. I decided
4: to use this really advanced uh, intelligence agency-level inquiry. They call it a Google check. And uh, I just simply Googled Charles Rowe's name just to see. And I could not believe that there was this public record of the allegations.
2: More after the break.
4: You're listening to Chameleon from Campside
1: Media. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. That's stamps.com. Code program. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke (laughs) girlie? Some peasant Coke? No. You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media.
2: So on Google, Jeff finds news reports about the case in the Philippines, the one involving Chuck and Dennis and allegations, which they denied, that they'd hired sex workers at strip clubs during an undercover sting. I asked Jeff what he thought about this, about the FBI's and the Justice Department's explanation that Chuck's activities in the Philippines were all just in service of his cover as a weapons dealer for a Mexican cartel. Could they have had an explanation that would have evaded some sort of accountability? Like Charles Rowe, could he say, for example, like, well, look, yeah, I go to strip clubs all the time and, you know, I I cavort with these prostitutes. But I'm like, that's part of my cover.
4: That would have been an approved activity, in fact, that uh, it would have probably been in his undercover that we're going to meet at these nightclubs in the Philippines. That is uh, running an overseas undercover, has additional approvals that are required in oversight. So uh, being there, drinking, uh, doing all that is acceptable activity if justified. What would never be justified is having sex with a prostitute as part of the undercover. It just wouldn't be. Um, Some of this activity that was alleged about lining up shots and making people drink till they passed out, that wouldn't have been approved. There's a number of things that would not have been approved had Officially,
2: For Jeff, Chuck and the FBI's behavior in the Philippines created credibility problems. And Jeff's initial thinking is that if Gus's case goes to trial, they could undermine Chuck's credibility on the witness stand by bringing up these issues. But still, it's not clear to Jeff that this is a bad case. So he gets on the phone with Gus.
4: It wasn't like a normal debriefing when I'm talking to a defendant and there's a lot of him hemming and hawing and uh, he had black and white answers, and they were all very convincing. And then as soon as I looked in the records, they were backed up. So that was the first thing. He was starting to get credibility. And uh, what he kept saying was, despite all the evidence I was looking at and trying to uh, acclimate myself to, he kept saying that there's nothing in discovery about Emil giving $25,000 to the FBI.
2: Yeah. So while Gus was in jail and going through all the FBI tapes, and then going back to Emil with questions, he found out something strange. He asked Emil about something Michelle said in a tape. Here's Gus.
1: Dude, what are they talking about here? Like, what are they referring to? And then he would tell me this is where I got scammed out of 25,000. Like, what? Wait a minute, you got scammed out of 25,000? Where is this in Discovery? He's like, yeah, it's not in Discovery. They, yeah, they were like stealing from me
2: and stuff. So Gus tells Jeff that in the FBI sting, the money was flowing both ways. Dennis gave Emil money to launder, but Emil also gave Michelle $25,000, money that he never got back. Here's Jeff again.
4: And I'll say he told me it was at least twice. <laughs> before I really listened to him. But about the third time he said it to me, he's like, Jeff, he goes, I keep telling you, nothing's in discovery, Emil gave them $25,000. And I stopped and I told him, Gassan, look, you keep saying that over and over again but I don't think it's true. The, F- the, the FBI wouldn't take 25,000 from Emil. Okay, their, their undercover scenario is giving money, not taking money. And so he starts telling me what happened. No, no, no. They told Emil that there was this uh, loan opportunity and if he invested 25,000, he could double his money and there was this ring as collateral. And the first time that Gassan sounded like a nut was on this conversation. I'm like, there's no way this happened. I, you know. This does, it just, but what it did was, it made me start thinking, I wonder if the source, <laughs> I wonder if the source was pulling something on the side.
2: The source, that's Michelle. Unbelievably enough, though, Gus doesn't realize this at the time, Michelle was trying to make a buck off of Emil. So the FBI sting didn't involve just money going from the FBI to Emile, but Emile was also giving money to one of the FBI guys. Emile apparently gave $25,000 to Michelle as part of a loan. And Michelle offered up something as collateral.
4: And I started looking for some corroborating information and I found reams of it, independent corroborating information that the source had run a scam on Emile, that he had extracted $25,000 from Emile, had posted a fake diamond as collateral.
2: So here's how it went down. One day, When all the money laundering was going on in Vegas, Michel told Emil that he has a friend who needs a short-term loan of $50,000. Michel proposed that he'll loan $25,000 and Emil will loan the other $25,000. This friend of Michel's has something to put up as collateral. He has a diamond, and this diamond is worth $100,000. So things can't go wrong. It's a beauty, Michel told Emil. Remember, Michel knew Emil had the money on hand, because Emile was flush from laundering Dennis's cash. But this deal that can't go wrong? Yeah, it went wrong. Neither Michel nor his purported friend paid back Emile. So Emile took the diamond, the collateral for the loan, to a friend, a Las Vegas jeweler named Brad Lauder. Emile figured he could sell it to get his money back.
5: He goes uh I lent him money on this, and he goes, can I sell it?
2: This is Brad, talking about Emile's visit to him with the diamond. And I looked at him and I said, uh,
5: I'm, I'm almost 100% sure the way that's set and the way it looks, it, it's not a diamond. You know, he just went nuts. He was like, are you kidding me?
2: Brad then asked Emil if he'd gotten the diamond from an older man with a foreign accent, a guy named Michelle.
5: And he was... Shocked that I knew where he got the thing from, you know.
2: The reason Brad knew the diamond came from Michelle was because he'd seen a fake diamond in a pendant, just like that one, once before. Brad bought it from Michelle. I met him after
5: playing poker one night because he was posting and I was buying stuff, and I was at the Rio and I met him and he and he shows me the diamond.
2: Brad uses diamond tester on the stone, and it came back positive, a diamond. I don't buy it then.
5: And he calls me back the next day and says, I'm leaving town and I'll sell it to you and I'm at the airport. And so I meet him at the airport.
2: Michelle offered a sob story for why he's selling the diamond.
5: His wife ran off with another guy and that's what he was selling, the pendant that he bought her and, you know, he had the paperwork. And when he got home, he was going to send me the paperwork and, you know, the bullshit stories.
2: Brad negotiated a price, $10,000. He gave Michelle the money and took the diamond home. That's when he realized the gem was set on the pendant in a layer of epoxy, which tricked his tester into reading the stone as a diamond.
5: As soon as I took it out of the pendant, I mean, it was apparent to me at that point that uh, I had been had. People figured out that if they put it in that epoxy, obviously, I hadn't figured it out yet, but I, I learned. <laughs> then, then, it reads as, then it reads as diamond and not as more than I.
2: Then, after that incident, Emile walked in with a diamond of his own. He shows up one day with the identical setup,
5: you know, diamond, that that I had bought from Michelle.
2: What Michelle had given Emile as collateral was really a moissanite. A stone that looks very similar to a diamond, but is much less valuable. The stone Michelle had passed off to Emile as a diamond was worth only about $800. Figuring all this out, Jeff begins to understand part of Operation Botox, that the informant, Michelle, was a bad actor, way beyond what you'd expect from FBI informants, who are often crooks and liars, pretty unsavory people.
4: I've had a lot of sources and dealt with a lot of sources, hundreds. Yes, sources can do some really crazy stuff, and sources can get, uh, they call it inside the Bureau, get off the reservation. They can go out and do some side criminal activity. Uh, what's rare is you don't find a source sticking their finger in the eye of the FBI <laughs> during their own investigation. They're not, they're not playing a side game with the targets of the investigation. They know better than that. You know, there's, they, they, they might do something on the side, but they're not going to do it to the defendant themselves. On this one, he's doing it to the defendant.
2: So the question for Jeff becomes, how much of what Michelle is doing is off the reservation, unknown to Chuck and Dennis, the FBI agents? And how much of his behavior is the FBI allowing and even covering up? In other words, how bad? How fucked? did Chuck and Dennis allow Operation Botox to get?
4: The amount of extraneous conversations that were caught on these devices that they were using was, to me, extraordinary.
2: Jeff Danik, the former FBI guy, knows Operation Botox went off the rails. Michelle ran a scam on Emil, the target of the FBI's investigation and ripped him off to the tune of $25,000. But what else did Michelle do? And what did the FBI know? How far did this thing go wrong? That's what Jeff sets about figuring out. He's talking to Gus all the time, hearing from Gus what he's heard on the tapes that's suspicious or strange. And then Jeff is going to the recordings and listening for himself. In a phone call from the detention center, Gus tells Jeff about one particular FBI recording he listened to. He says Dennis and Michelle were at a nightclub. Something like that. Loud music in the background. And Michelle blew up the whole operation. Jeff finds the recording and listens. And it's all the same stuff you've been hearing. Dennis and Michelle, out on the town, trying to find would-be money launderers. In this case, they went out to meet a friend of Kim's named Natalie. She's also a bodybuilder. They go to STK a steakhouse in the Cosmopolitan, on the Las Vegas Strip. Yeah, I to I to I nice. Dennis is drinking his usual. We
0: doing Johnny? Johnny blue. Johnny blue, but remember, not a whole, not, not a whole lot of one, one nice cube.
3: One cube with Blue. Yeah.
2: This night, though, Dennis got pissed at Michelle, because instead of talking to Natalie about laundering money, he flirted with Natalie the whole time. So Dennis went outside to call Chuck.
1: Okay, here's the deal. that fuck. Okay, that that girl that that Kim brought. Okay, she is smoking hot. Okay. Dennis was
2: furious at Michelle because he appeared to think Natalie could be coerced into laundering money.
1: What? He's fucking trying to get up on her. He's fucking having these private conversations. Okay. I'm. This should be like a group conversation. I don't need to fucking get him anymore. She's good to go. I need to get this girl.
2: After talking to Chuck, Dennis returned to the club and talked to Michelle privately. He scolded Michelle for screwing up the operation for the night. They no longer had time to see if Natalie would launder money for them.
1: I understand she's
2: hot. There's the usual talk. Dennis says at one point, I understand she's hot. And Michelle, as if to excuse his behavior, replies, and so fucking horny. They continued. After the evening ended, Chuck, whose job required him to write down what happened that evening, wrote a report summarizing the informant and undercover agent's evening with Kim and Natalie. He didn't mention that Michelle ruined their operation because he couldn't control himself while undercover. Instead, Chuck wrote, after reviewing the recording of this meeting, no pertinent information was obtained. To Jeff Danik, this particular recording was revealing.
4: There's a conversation between the undercover and the case agent where they leave the recorder running and it's a, it's a F-bomb-filled screaming match about about the informant and how bad he is.
2: So if, as the FBI claims, Michel was just this random guy who came off the streets and provided information about Emile Buhari, Chuck could have cut him loose, fired him as an informant. But he didn't. He wrote a report that covered for him. Why were they essentially protecting him? Why were they covering up for behavior that might have gotten another informant booted from the FBI. And then Jeff stumbles on something else, something even more concerning. Jeff finds a connection between Chuck and Paul Pata, a Las Vegas lawyer suing Emil for defamation, a guy who had no reason to shed any tears over Emil and his brother being locked up for money laundering. Is it evidence of something or just a coincidence? More about that in the next episode. This is High Rollers. In the next episode, you'll hear about how Las Vegas lawyer Paul Pata's name kept coming up in Operation Botox. Yeah,
1: how are you? How are you? Good, how are you? Great, Ashley, um, from room care. Oh my gosh, what and are now you? I work for Paul Patta.
2: You'll hear Paul's former law partner talk about his FBI friends.
1: The FBI got involved, but I think the FBI
2: got involved with Paul's friends. And you'll hear one theory about how Operation Botox got started. We
5: haven't uncovered everything yet, but I think there's a lot of dots that you can connect
4: um, about why this investigation started.
2: (laughs) Chameleon Season 2 comes from Campsite Media. It's hosted by me, Trevor Aronson. Our executive producers are Vanessa Gregoriadis and Adam Hoff. Alex Yablon fact-checked the series. Margo Williams also contributed to research. Mark McAdam composed the theme song. Doug Slaywin and Sam Leeds provided production support. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed High Rollers, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other listeners like you find the show. And make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Take me in, Sin City. Take me in, Sin City. When you're in Sin City, no use confessing your sins.